Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative, an FI360 project. I'm Tara McBride. This month, we are excited to share our interview with Lisa Brignoni, a wealth management operations and technology leader. Lisa is currently the Women in Investment Management and Programs Chair for the CFA Society in Pittsburgh. I had the pleasure of working with Lisa in a previous role, which is where we met, and I was always struck by how intricate Lisa's examination was of any experience. She has a razor-sharp mind for analysis, as exhibited in her roles as a portfolio analyst. But whenever she was tapped for a creative project, which is often why I was chasing her, she can bring exceptionally fresh ideas to the table. I might be a little biased because I personally think Lisa is incredible, but the time Alicia and I spent with her was a lot of fun and very insightful. There was so much to talk about, and we certainly did not get to it all, so stay tuned. We may have more coming from Lisa in the near future. So here it is, a little louder now with Lisa Brignoni. Can you tell us the story of how you and Dylan met? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, and it's a fun one. I love, I love telling the story because as I start, it, it, um, it definitely like has some puzzled looks on people's faces as I go through. So it's a fun one. So anyway, we, we actually met, we met online and I was in Colombia and Dylan was in Colorado. So I was in the middle of a five, uh, I was in five, uh, month five of my career break, a two year career break. So this is the point too, where people are like, you took a career break, like what? Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was traveling through South America. I was planning to do that for about nine months. And I had for the next day of my travels, I wanted to do this thing called the Mongol route, which I had heard about from some of my other travel career breaker friends. And so I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. The Mongo Rally is an overland trip from Southeastern UK all the way over to Mongolia in a little car. And it's organized by this group called the Adventurist. And um, so teams get together from all over the three to four people or two people. And they buy a little car, a very small engine car. And the idea is you drive it across to Mongolia and you donate it at the end. And you have this great adventure in the middle of that. So I thought that's something I could do. The one problem I had was that I was traveling alone and I couldn't think of any friends that I had that were willing to take two months off of their work or quit their jobs in order to, to do this uh, the expedition with me. And so I asked, I asked some people, I'm like, how, how do you how do you join a team? How do you get people together? And somebody said to just check out some travel forums. So I thought, okay, I literally went on to Google and I said, Mongol Rally 2013 teams. And I said, okay, let's see, let's see what comes up. And there were a number of blog posts, people blogging about their, uh, their plans to do this in 2013. And so I, I read a couple of them and I read one in particular and I said at the end, I was like, ah, that sounds, you know, that sounds interesting. This sounds like somebody to talk to. And so I responded, I commented on Dylan's blog post and I, you know, went about, went about my business. I came back a couple of days later and I saw that there was a comment and this was back when people were using Blogspot, not even WordPress. So <laughs> it was, uh, it was kind of funny to, to see some of the comments. And so I, I, I noticed, oh, there is a comment here. And the guy said, oh, hey, email me at this address. Let's talk about it. Excited to hear about your adventure. And so that's how it started. So that's how I, that's how I found Dylan. And then over the course of several emails, I was like, oh, okay, I could, I could hop in a car with this random, this random guy <laughs> from Colorado I've never met. And it's just like, it's fine because that's kind of the attitude and the persona that you have when you're traveling is that you really like, you take to other people who are traveling, you're all in the same boat. So you have this expectation that you're all kind of a little bit unhinged, but also safe to be around, if that makes sense. So that was how it kind of got started. We started talking and then uh, along the way, I found out that we had similar disinterests, such as hatred for golf <laughs> and, and whatnot. So that was when I said, I was like, this guy, he's all right. I could, I could travel with him and possibly marry him. So I was like, all right. And then lo and behold, we did actually travel across. We did 
make it to Mongolia and back. We donated the car and we only had a couple of, you know, blow ups in between, but we're, uh, we're here today. So that's uh, kind of the condensed version of it. It was uh, certainly a good time and really, really glad to say that I, I met my future husband online by Google search. <laughs> <laughs> I love, and you two are so good for each other. I watching the way that you banter with each other and it just you both have this sense of adventure that I just I find so infectious I, I think it's fantastic I adore you too thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you what a witness test too <laughs> that's what I tell everybody who's who's like oh you know how do you know how do you know if so-and-so is the one I was like get into a tiny car with them and travel 10,000 miles get sweaty get dirty get lost get in all sorts of like poor, horrible situations, get yourself out of it and then say, ah, okay. But <laughs> it is something too, where it's like, these are things that you don't, nor you would normally over the course of a lifetime kind of go through them unless you actively chose to go through them as opposed to things like, you know, like losing jobs, you know, loss of family members and stuff like that. That's kind of, um, you know, kind of given, but this is something that you kind of choose into. So it's a, it was a good, it was a good test. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are married and still adventuring. I want to transition into um, something that's not quite so adventurous, at least on the surface. And that's the industry that we work in, which is, you know, financial <laughs> services. So, um, so Lisa, tell us about how you got into the financial services industry, kind of the work that you've done uh, in your time in the industry. So getting into getting into financial services, I, I really stumbled upon it. It wasn't something that I, I grew up saying uh, when I was younger that man, I want to be I want to be a stockbroker because that would have been or an accountant because those would have been the two professions that you would have known about at, at that at a young age. And even when I went into college, I had gone in with the almost it was almost fear driven why I kind of went into financial services because I had this, this thought growing up that you basically need to have a job where you make as much money as possible and you just need to do that to in order to succeed in order to break through uh class barriers that's what you need to do and so it was something where i said well i'm i'm good at math so this is where this is where i'm going to land it was also something too of a it was sort of a, a self-esteem boost because i had been applying to colleges when i was uh obviously in high school and well, I got into UPenn, the, their Wharton undergrad school, which was the top undergrad school for business at that time. And that was a huge, huge uh, deal. And it was something that nobody, nobody in my family had done and nobody in the school district that I was in had done. So it was a really big boost. And being able to go to such a prestigious school had a huge impact on me. But it was also this very heavy, um, this level of importance that was on me. And so it was something where I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And the options, the career options that were lined out to us were investment banking and management consulting, and then other. So those were the three career paths that were really discussed when, when I was going through undergrad. And so that's, you know, all I, all I really thought about was being some kind of equity analyst or being this road warrior travel uh, consultant. And so I ended up stumbling into, again, the management consulting route. And it was a thing where I, you know, I struggled finding out the exact path, finding that, that coveted internship junior year. And I ended up instead just saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to study abroad. And so I, um, I did two study abroads, one in Italy and the other in Costa Rica. So those experiences had a lasting impact on me that would affect me later. But then I did go back into um, finding out, okay, so I'm going to go into this consulting path. And it was just because that was the opportunity that was, um, that was presented to me. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta go with it. And so that <laughs> isn't a great story for how you get into financial services, but that's how I ended up there. And then I started learning along the way about things like the CFA charter. That was something that we talk about how we have to teach, uh, teach women about 
these different career paths early on. But that was something for me. I was um, I was well into my first uh, first career when I had found out about the CS Institute, and so that was something where I said, well, this is a really good alternative to going to grad school for me. And so I said, all right, I'm going to start to study for the CFA and take these tests, and then that's going to take me to the next level. And so. For me, it was a lot of just figuring out how to how to get to the next level of my career, how to be this um, this image of success that uh, was kind of you know shown to me through uh, through role models uh, growing up and whatnot. So that's uh, kind of where I where you know I I came to this point of I had to take a career break, and that's where I landed. Uh, I ended up in South America for about eight to eight to ten months. I was there. And and then traveling across Asia with my future husband, and then from there I kind of evolved into this wealth management, uh, personal finance path, where I really understood the power of planning for something like a career break, like saying to your, to myself, this is something I really want to do, and I have to get my financial situation in order in order to do this. So, it's something I really felt like I could. I could provide that kind of help to to others in their financial with their financial goals. And so I got into wealth management for, for that reason. And as I continued on, I realized how much I enjoyed helping not just small subgroups of people who already have wealth, but those who are really trying to um, who are trying to build wealth, who are trying to accumulate and try to do different things with their lives, how to help them. And so that's that's what brings me like to where I am today and why and why I really enjoy being in this field. So it wasn't something I kind of set out to do. I knew I was going to do, but I'm really glad that I'm here and I'm glad that I have that experience of going through these different career paths to get to this point and be able to share that and kind of grow upon that. So it's something I'm, I'm like, I really want to continue in this. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so awesome. So um, you talked about how you enjoyed helping people, right? So can you share a story, something either personal or maybe clients that you worked with that you felt like, yeah, I, I did something for this person. I really, I helped them um, achieve something that they were, they were striving for. And I had a big hand in that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think of a lot of like small instances where the theme of just being able to say, I see you comes up a lot for me. And I think it's as simple as, as saying to, to somebody who, who is a doctor, who is trying to understand their portfolio and understand like what the messages they're getting from the news, from their friends, how to talk about that with their advisor. And just being able to relate that to some of the, uh, I guess, uh, traps that we fall into when somebody goes and uses too much WebMD to look up their symptoms and whatnot goes to them. And that was something I made that analogy to, to an audience, one being a doctor who said that was something that really connected with me and said, you know, I, I, I got what you were saying because of that analogy. And I think it's little things like that of saying, I'm, I'm meeting you where you are. I'm trying to imagine myself in your place. And that, that really opens up a huge world for people. And I, you know, I think I'm trying to think of some other like more like concrete examples, but one, the one thing I, I love, cause I, I do love going back to, I go, going back to my travel experiences and relating them to my work life and to my development as a person. And one of the things I really enjoyed was a time when I was crossing the border from Colombia into Peru in a very remote area. And I was there with a border. Um, the border agent was a single woman who was in an, a small office and uh, interrogating me over, <laughs> over what I was doing in Peru. She wanted to know how many days I needed there. And we were kind of going back and forth about the number of days I should be there because I was like, yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's 90 days. Right. And she's like, well, you were here before. And I said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm only going to be here passing through. We were just going through the motions. And it went from seven days to 10 days to 20 days. And I finally settled on 20 days. I was like, all right, 
And so we went through this whole process. And then afterwards, I had to wait for a boat because I was taking a boat on the Amazon, as you do in that part of the world. To make a long story short, but the woman, I was waiting there and the woman came over to me and she wanted, she just wanted to start chatting, like girl talk. And I said, okay, this is, this is interesting. I can't believe I'm, I'm talking about this. But by the end of her story, she was telling me about this man that had wooed her, this American man. He wooed her and promised her the world. And by the end of that conversation, I was so livid. I was ready to go to New Orleans, find this guy, hunt him down, and give him a piece of my mind on her behalf. And it was just so like being able just to have that that little bit of conversation there's somebody who just wants to reach out and just be heard and to have that kind of comfort of hey we're we are you know we may be different we live in different countries we have different cultures different life experiences but there's a lot that keeps there's a lot that we have in common and elizabeth gilbert the author of e pray love had mentioned this when she was meeting uh, when she was meeting women, and I believe it was Indonesia. How everybody wanted to talk about their love lives, and it's like having these things where you are, where you realize how much you have in common is really is really special. And I think that that's something I always take with me was that you can you can really have a big impact on somebody just by saying I see you, I hear you and uh, listening to their story. I love that. We've had conversations, you and I, Lisa, a few times about this very topic. And um, I love that you're bringing, up, bringing it up because I think it segues nicely into what we're trying to do with the Bridge Initiative, which is about inclusivity and you know, it, uh, making sure that people are seen and heard. So I have to, I have to ask, um, you know, what kinds of lessons have you learned in, in working in this industry and, you know, whether it's how to treat a client or how to navigate as a woman in an industry that up until now and, and in our present time has been uh, male dominated? How do you, how do you navigate? So I think there are a couple, quite, quite a few lessons. One being the first, just looking at my career path, there is no well-defined or preordained path in this industry. It's something that I've learned and I've started to accept about myself because I think that part of the struggle as a woman is that you, for, for whatever reasons, you may have some gaps in your, in your career path, whether it be for motherhood or for, um, or for, for career break or for taking care taking care of a relative or loved one. There are lots of reasons why you may diverge. And you also just may find that you're discovering more about yourself, about your interests, about what you like, what you're good at. And you may find yourself doing these kind of side, um, you know, sideways um, tracks in your career. And it's certainly something not to not to uh, kind of make a make an excuse for or feel like it makes you less because you're not climbing this corporate ladder, so to speak, in a very linear fashion. And so that's a that's something that I I think is is really important to recognize and uh, and embrace. So, because you know, when you go into this thinking, oh, this is what you do, you have to you have to stay at the same company for 20 years, you have to do this, you have to you know meet this checkpoint, get here, and then that's that's what you do to have a career. And so, I think that that's something that's really just not 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 true, and something to kind of keep in mind because when you do have that in mind, you're more likely to take risks you're more likely to feel like you can fail safely. And that's where, that's where growth comes from, right? That's where innovation comes from. When you feel like you can do things a little bit differently. And, and I think that that also kind of goes into talking about authenticity. That's something I think has come up so much recently. We hear so many people talking about uh, being your authentic self, leading with authenticity. And it's, it's true. I think that you, the times when I've been told to act a certain way or do a certain thing, when I've been kind of stage managed, if you will, prepped, it's never gone over well. The times when 
I've been, I've been, Hey, this is me. This is what I do. It, it works out really well for me. And people respond to that because even if it's on some unconscious level, people know when you're, people know when you're really being yourself. And I think to this, just recently I was doing the market forecast panel for the CFA Society of Pittsburgh. And it was something I had, I had not done before. I was kind of nervous about being in front of all of my colleagues. And I had asked somebody for advice and I was talking about, you know, well, I, I kind of feel like I should play it safe because this is, uh, you know, I feel like this is a more of a conservative group and whatnot. And the, I was talking to Cheryl Brown about this and she's just like, no, 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 no. She kept saying, no, don't do that. Don't play it safe. And I was like, eh, okay, whatever. But then <laughs> afterwards I said, afterwards I was like she's right she's right I really just need to do this and it turned out to be everything I hoped for and more it was you know I took a chance with some some jokes about bird box movie and they went over really well even with the people who didn't get them so it was something where I said that's that's a good case that's a good case study in authenticity and taking being able to to feel like you can fail safely. It's where you're going to try. You're going to try your best. You're going to grow. And those are the things I think about when I kind of consider how I'll continue to navigate my career and how I would tell somebody, like, when you're getting into this, here's some things to think about. I think that's so interesting, Lisa, because I think that living your authentic self is much more than a Pinterest badge, right? It's it's being who you truly are, and you're absolutely right that people know when you're not being authentic. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree. It resonates. It really resonates. And I think, I, I think just generally, not, not just in our industry, but as women, we are often, and this isn't new. Like, I think about women in the 80s wearing their power suits and the broad, you know, short shoulder <laughs> Sorry, I go to fashion. My fault. But, you know, they, were, they felt like they needed to wear these masculine outfits because they needed to look like men in order to be successful. And I just am so thankful that we live in a time when that idea that you have to be something else in order to realize success is being shattered again and again and again. You don't have to dress a certain way or talk a certain way or present a certain way. You do what makes sense for you and what feels good and you'll, you'll realize success. I just think that's so exciting. Um, yeah. So along those lines, Lisa, <laughs> um, you, you said something about failing safely. I love that phrase failing safely, just kind of, you know, the sense that you can make mistakes and it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of your career. So along those lines, is there something that you would be willing to share that you have failed at and maybe a lesson or two that you've learned from that failure? I think I, so when I was thinking about thinking about failure earlier, I, I think too, it's also something to keep, to keep in perspective that failure is also in the eye of the beholder. Right. And I think there are, there are certain instances where it appears to somebody else that I failed. And probably because I think, you know, a lot of it is this whole rising up the corporate ladder and uh, having a linear, a linear career path. And I look back at those and I think in the time I probably thought I was failing, failing, but I really, I, I don't know. I, I, I have struggled to think that I failed because I feel like I'm still going. I'm still doing this whole mantra of begin again. And so so I had to think about that a little bit more. I did like for a very concrete example of failure, I did fail the third exam on the CFA test, which was just heartbreaking as anybody who has failed, failed a professional certification, certification knows that isn't, it isn't just about the, the work that you put in. It's about the expectations and the people that are going to ask you, oh, so how did you do? Oh, oh, you failed. Oh, sad. Right. And, mm-hmm. and then oh, there's that fear of who's going to think less of you because you failed. And it was actually really, really difficult for me when I, when I got that fail notice, because I, I was not in a supportive environment. And I actually vividly remember a colleague 
making you know, making a comment about it, like, oh, you failed. And it was very, I don't remember the exact words that were said to me, but I remember how I felt and the look that I had in my face. And I remember like just everything, you know, everything in my face dropping because I couldn't believe that someone said that to me. And it was in that moment that this colleague had actually realized what he had done, what he had said, and this immediate, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just did that. And that, that was my, my biggest fear realized was being told that I was less, that I was nothing, and I couldn't do this. And it really, that was part of the motivation for getting it done the next time. But it was almost like I was, I was angry. I was out to prove a point. And so it was, you know, it was kind of what, what I learned from that was really, really focusing on your inner validation as opposed to outside validation. But, you know, something that I, you know, I, I look back at that and I also think, I need to share that story more because I shared it once at a university, university outreach panel, a career panel with students. And I could see, I was on a panel talking about preparing for this exam. I could see all the tension in the room from all these students based on the questions they were asking about how to pass, like, you know, tricks to pass the exam how much you need to study, like all of these things that I was sitting there thinking about, like passing the exam is important, but what you do afterwards, what you do in your career is going to matter so much more. And the priority right here is just on this passing the test. And so I shared with them, I said, look, I, I failed the first, the first exam or the third exam of my first time. And I'm here, I'm alive. I did it. I'm okay. And I think that that, that helped um, that helps people say, okay. And then what happened was the, the guy next to me on the panel said, yeah, I failed. I failed one of the exams too. And somebody else said, yeah, I failed twice. And so you get this when people start talking about their failures, you realize how many other people have gone through the same thing and you can relate. And there isn't this, this whole facade that you need to put up. And when you take that down, that, that weight, it's amazing how that feels. And that was something too, I, I was listening to uh, one of, uh, about the CFP exams, I was listening to one of Rianca Dorsonville's episodes where she talked about failing the CFP exam. And I was like, this is great, this is great. We're all failures, this is amazing. <laughs> we are all failures. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to be the first one to be honest and true. And then all of a sudden it's, it spreads, it's, it's contagious. Uh, everybody wants to do it. Everybody wants to share a story. It, it's um, sometimes it's just, you just have to be the first one to be brave enough to do it. So good for you. Absolutely. You have other people <laughs> dropping down their, their guards. I think that's so great. And I think it's really interesting yeah. that you had the bravery or gumption for lack of a better word to say that in a place that is so conservative and a field that is so conservative, nobody wants to show any weakness quote-unquote weakness. So I think it's really interesting that you were able to do that and that you were able to grow from it. And I think that speaks to you as a person um, because it's really, we, we all fail. You know, I fail often. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like I try to grow from those failures and that's what's important. I try not to fail, obviously, but there are days where I come home and I said, I could have done better. You know, I could have been better today. So I try harder and I try to be better the next and that's just something that relates to everyone, right? Nobody has ever been perfect their whole life and never been disappointed but with the way that they performed on an exam or a day at work or a day at school performance. So it's just, it's an interesting thing that it, that opened up such a can of confessions that they <laughs> feel too. And it happens. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I agree completely. Yeah. I, so, I mean, one of the things that I share often is that I go to yoga. <laughs> and <laughs> yoga has, has taught me a lot about um, sitting, with, uh, sitting in, a dis in discomfort, being in an un uncomfortable position. And, you know, we're, we're asked to be put in these physical positions that are uncomfortable, and then we're told to stay there, to breathe through it. The easy thing to do is to wiggle and fidget and try to move out of it. 
Um, the hard thing to do is sit in it. But when you do that, I think you said this a little bit earlier, uh, Lisa, is that when you do that, you make space, you make, you make room for more. Um, and it's just amazing to me how you can apply something that you do with your physical body to your mental body and how important it is to kind of sit with discomfort and work through it, not be afraid of it, not run from and, and how much you can learn just from doing that. And it's really interesting yeah. to me because Tara and I were just talking about this <laughs> and we both enjoy yoga and love sitting in discomfort for what it mentally does for you. But it's such an interesting thing to apply in a business sense because it does force you to grow. And it, when you're in an uncomfortable position professionally, you're easy, not easy, but you're in an easy space where you're comfortable with that to move forward in the future with growth as opposed to just, oh, I can't do that, I'm backing away. It's, you know what, how can I contort myself into getting this? Yeah, <laughs> I can yeah. do this. Yeah. I love those stories too about how people bring these lessons from their personal lives, whether it be yoga, traveling, cooking, taking care of your kids or whatever into their personal lives and how I realize how much everything is interrelated. And I, I like that we're getting to a point now where we can be more, uh, be more open about our personal lives and work and how they all how they all go together. So I love that I love that you're talking about yoga and how how that relates to working through discomfort. Yeah, it's really I mean, not to plug yoga as a practice, but it certainly has helped me <laughs> because I, I get very anxious about my work and I want my best work out there. And if I make a mistake, it's I feel like to this day, you know, I still feel like if I make a mistake that it's devastating. And I hate that mm -hmm. feeling, but, uh, you know, it goes back to what we were saying that everybody fails, everybody makes mistakes. It's really just about what you do with that experience that I think is more telling of your character than the mistake itself. Absolutely. So shifting gears just a little bit, um, you know, this is going to go back to something that you and I have talked about a little bit, Lisa, about, you know, just diversity in general um, and particularly diversity for, you know, and how it relates to investors. So. You know, I just want to kind of get your take on how you think that the industry needs to move forward so we can do better for the end investor. You know, I, I think that you and I have talked about the challenges that come sitting across the table from somebody who doesn't look like you, who hasn't had experiences like you, and you're expected to just hand over your entire life's savings to this person. And the expectations that sort of come with that, you know, I, I just wanted to get your take on how you see us changing as an industry and, and what we could do better and what we already are doing better. Yeah, I think that, that that actually ties in very well to what we were just talking about, the personal experiences. And I think that that's something we, we need to do a better job of promoting, encouraging in the people that we're trying to attract to this industry. And what I mean by that is we talk about some of the, the powerful experiences you have connecting with somebody and gaining that trust just by, just by saying, I see you, just by saying, I, I'm trying to imagine myself in your, in your position and having that, having that space to fail again, right? To say, hey, I, you know, can I talk to you about this? And if somebody says, eh, no, I don't want to talk about that or, or whatnot, you can, you can safely move on, but that you're just showing, um, showing an active interest in that. And so when we think about what we, what we need to do encouraging this, I, I, I like the idea of the financial planners who are, who are promoting themselves more as a lifestyle practice. So they are saying that this is the very specific uh, niche that I am going to, to appeal to. I want to work specifically with women of color. I want to work specifically with educators. I want to work with, um, um, I, I can think of, think of a, a whole bunch of different, uh, different very specific groups, but um, having that laser focus and being able to support these advisors and with such a such a such a focus group and with with clients that are building wealth as opposed to clients that already have wealth and i think we do that through the innovation in the tools that we have in the access to information and 
these are the things that we work on from the, the wealth technology side to support all of these advisors. So you don't have to be this um, advisor that's a part of a, a huge corporate group that has to follow certain, um, you know, certain protocols in delivering your, what your client experience is. You have a little bit more freedom. And I think that supporting that, we are going to reach the rest of the 3 million households in the U.S. that need our services because we have so much, up until now, it's just been advisors kind of fighting over the same group of, of investors that already have wealth. But there's so many, there's so many more that are going to be transitioning that wealth. And have, have actually had a long conversation with, uh, with Dylan about this last night about how we, you know, how we look to those advise or to those investors that will be, uh, will be inheriting this great, the great wealth transfer, if you will, that's, what is it, like $3 trillion or something like that? Yeah. It's, it, there's, there's a lot there. Like, how do we start to not say, well, they'll just be our clients because, um, because their loved ones were our clients. Um, how do we actively reach out to them? So I think there's a lot of support that we need to provide these innovative planners who are kind of going out there on their own, starting their own practices and trying to, trying to reach these underserved markets. So I think that's, yeah, that's just the summary of trying to, um, we just need to work on that, that underserved market by bringing personal experiences to them through the advisors that they can, that they can interact with on their terms. I think it's so interesting because I feel like there's such a push in the industry to move toward capturing these millennials and these people that are going to inherit a large amount of money from their parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not a large amount of money, but they're going to inherit enough that they're worth trying to get as a client. Right. And I think it's a really interesting thing that we've, as an industry, we've marketed to a certain group of people for a very long time, and we've now learned that that's not going to work anymore. You know, it's sort of something that is a self-interest type thing, right? Because who who's going to keep us in business if we don't market to these new people? But it's also the right thing to do, right? You know, it's reach out to millennials. They may not have a lot to invest, but they can still invest, and you can teach them how to invest right. while they're paying off their student loans. That's mm -hmm. one of the seminars and I'm going to go to a conference because I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. I was just going to say, well, you mentioned there too, that comes up to this whole short-term versus long-term view and very short-term thinking is going after the people who are the high net worth um, clients, right? Like every, every advisor is specializes in high net worth for whatever reason, but having that long-term view is you, you kind of pointed out with helping somebody pay off their student loans so that they can start building wealth and how great of a client that will be uh, helping them build that wealth. And that's something where you're thinking, you're thinking 20 years down the road. Do you want to constantly be looking for new clients every year or do you want to build these, these longer lasting relationships and have these kind of stickier clients, if you will? So I think it goes to thinking more long-term too. And Tara, whenever we, our last webinar, the speaker mentioned that it was like 65% of widows leave their financial advisor whenever their spouse passes away. And to me, that is just money walking off the table. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested to know your thoughts on that, Lisa. That's sort of what I'm thinking here as a long-term game is invite the woman to the room talk to her, see what her thoughts are, mm -hmm. and then maybe you'll keep her if he passes away first. Absolutely. And that was, I'm glad you mentioned that stat because I was trying to think of it the other day and I knew, I knew it was greater than 50%. I knew it was greater than 60%, but beyond that, I couldn't think of it. And that's a, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge myth. And it's, um, it's an easy one, right? Like all you have to do is bring women into the conversation to meet them, meet them at their level. And, and I don't mean meet somebody at their level as if it's a lower level or above level. I mean that it's a different level. And there is something that I, I was kind of laughing at because 
we were tossing around the idea of buying rental rental property and we we had gotten some quotes right for for loans and there's this one very very ambitious mortgage officer who was um, constantly talking to Dylan about about oh you know when's your next you know what's your next step and we we kind of had to pump the brakes and he was very insistent on talking to Dylan all the time and then when Dylan started ignoring him then he then he started calling me and bringing me into the conversation and I was like I was like no no first of all I'm angry well, I was angry because I was telling Dylan, I'm like, you got to shut this down right now. You got to be forceful. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. And then this guy calls me and I ended up, I ended up leaving him a very stern message about, first of all, I had, I had to talk about inbound versus outbound marketing. <laughs> and then I, I told him to speak to his supervisor about how this isn't working. His technique is not working. It's not working on me. And then I ended with, do not call me ever. And I was sit- I was sitting on a plane, and I could not believe. Or I was we had just just landed. I couldn't believe that I did that. But I I felt like I needed to get the point across. And I just thought this is exactly what we're talking about: not bringing women into the conversation. And then what happens? You get an angry voicemail from a New Yorker, and you're just crumbled, and it's not good for anybody. Yeah, no. I but I'm glad that you had the like you left that voicemail. I think that. You know, most people would just say, oh, you know, that's just that person and we're just going to let it go. It doesn't really matter to us. But I think the more that we call out this behavior about how it's unacceptable, the more we're going to see change. You know, if we just sit by and hope that somebody else is going to do it or that, you know, the people, you know, maybe accidentally or purposefully operating this way of just figure it out on their own, then I think that we're fooling ourselves. I think it's great that you said something. I think that's really important. I also feel like we did that sit by and idly hope for the best approach and that didn't really work. Right. So let's be a little bit more pushy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and right. there's nothing wrong with that. We should not be embarrassed about it. We shouldn't allow anybody to call us any crass words for being stern. You know, my favorite line, I've heard it attributed to Beyonce and to Nicki Minaj and I don't know who it was probably somebody, you know, like Gloria Steinem or somebody who said it first, but I love the phrase, I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. Like just, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with, you know, standing in your power. So good for you. I think that was a great, that was a great voicemail to leave. I would love to have heard that recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's, who knows? Who knows where it is? It's probably out there somewhere. But <laughs> I think that's a good point though, about making about standing up and calling these things out because I think of so many times where after the fact I was like man I should have said something because it's going to continue and the worst that happens well I mean the worst that happens is you get fired which is pretty terrible but I think that's what stops a lot of people is because of the the consequences and the the power construct as it is if you say something that's going to that's not going to help your career and there was an article just recently, I think it was in, was it in Fortune, Fortune or Bloomberg? And they were, um, they were talking about the one word that you don't want in your performance review as a woman. And it was abrasive or pushy. And those are the ones where, where there is that, that, yeah, that gender bias, where a woman who is asserting herself or questioning outcomes is going to have that abrasive, pushy, uh, label attached to her where a man in that similar situation will be assertive. Uh, so it is important to, to keep that, um, to keep that at the top of our minds, to constantly think about that and how we challenge that. And I have, I have two things to say about that. The first thing is that you mentioned earlier about don't play it safe. And I feel like that, that's one of those times when you don't play it safe, do it respectfully, right. do it in a place of personal growth and hey, this is how I would like to be treated. This is how I feel it would be appropriate. And if you have an issue with that, let's work it out. Um, But don't let somebody walk all over you. And then I think it's also ties back to being in a place where you feel safe and you feel comfortable to have that sort of conversation. I've been in many roles in the past where I would not have felt comfortable having that conversation because I just would have been, quote unquote, the problem. But I don't feel that way 
currently, and I um, don't think I ever will here. And so I feel comfortable having that conversation that, hey, this isn't acceptable. Let's talk about what's acceptable. Mm -hmm. And then we can move on and be mutually respectful to each other. That's right. Yeah. So Lisa, I have just one last question. Given, you know, this, this initiative being focused on diversity and inclusion and women especially, uh, I could say personally that, you know, part of what has helped propel me forward, it, you know, personally and with my career is that I had a really strong influence from several women in my life that, you know, I look at them now and I cannot believe how incredibly powerful they are. So, you know, we, we use the phrase unstoppable woman, right? So mm -hmm. my mom, my grandmother, my aunts, they're just all really incredible women who have influenced my life. So I want to turn that question to you. You know, is there a woman in your life who you would consider unstoppable and who is that and, and why do you consider her? Well, I, it's funny because I, I actually go, I actually dig way back into, into my middle school years for this answer for my unstoppable woman. And because you know, I, I thought about it a lot and I, I have, I have a lot of like wonderfully supportive, supportive friends that I always look up to. But the reason I went, went kind of a little bit further back was because I was thinking about somebody who was really just gave me advice that I didn't really know at the time. And later on in my life, I was, I was like, wow, she had it right. And the woman was my, my middle school art teacher who, her name is Mrs. Travis, uh, first name Jean, uh, but I'm sure I would still call her Mrs. Travis if I saw her to this day. And she was, <laughs> as a 35-year-old woman, I'd still be like, Mrs. Travis, hello. <laughs> but she, she was just such a, 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 she was a force of nature. She was such a presence. I can, I can very vividly remember like, outfits she wore, her facial expressions, her eyes, everything that she, she was when she was teaching us because she she was in it to win it. She, she was so passionate about teaching us art, not just art itself, but teaching us the value, the importance of, it, and turning it into something that in the, this is a, a, a subject that a lot of, a lot of people think, ah, it's just art. And, you know, you hear so many jokes about starving artists and people going to, you know, spending all this money, having these student loans for art majors and whatnot. And it was something that she really impressed upon us as being so important. And some of the things in terms of like failing safely and challenging, she was somebody who, who did that. And she really pushed me in terms of, I, I, I remember it was very, uh, it was very interesting. We were, she, we were doing impressionist, impressionist style paintings. And that was the majority of the course study there. And she was telling me once, because I had, I, I'm very myopic. I had the biggest glasses anyone could possibly have at that age. And she was telling me, do you need, you need to take your glasses off. You need to paint as they painted. And she was very, and I'm just a kid, right? I'm like 13 or 14 years old. And she was telling me these like great lessons about life, about take your glasses off and just start painting. It's wonderful. You'll love it. And, and I did, it was great. And it was, you know, I didn't create any masterpieces, but it was something that was so just like someone telling me that this is okay. And I love that. And then there was the lesson about the lawyer that she gave because while we were painting, she would always do these like stories, these like life stories and just talk to us as we were doing this. She was telling us the story of the lawyer who would spend 18 hours a day at the office and then come home into his basement and paint because that was his passion. And his daughter reflecting later, like really trying to understand like why, why her dad wouldn't spend any time with her trying to understand that. And obviously there are some other things going on there, but she ended the story with the lesson here is why not be the courtroom artist? And I was, sitting there, my 13, 14 year old self saying like, well, he can't be the courtroom artist because then he'll never make any money and he'll be poor and he won't be able to support her. <laughs> and it's like, all of that was going through my mind. And so I was like, yeah, that probably won't work, but okay. And, but I, I respected her so much. I didn't actually say that. And I didn't, 
uh, didn't express that at all. And it was when I was taking the career break that I realized, I was like, she she wasn't saying be a court you have to be you all have to be artists right she wasn't saying you all have to forgo any other interest and painting sculpture all those things were just all you needed to do what she was telling you was following your passion like being being brave and not following a path just because of fear or because it was you know preordained for you so to speak. And so I think about that lesson, think about that lesson all the time of just you have, you can't, you can't say, okay, this is what other people expect of me. This is what I need to do. You have to, you have to push yourself. And, and I love that. And for that, I'm just like, that's, that's what makes her unstoppable. And along with all the other, the other lessons of just pushing us to do different things. But I think I, I really enjoy that story. And I want to, yeah, I want to, I want to give her credit because I do feel like, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of our, our high school, middle school teachers, we just don't, um, we, we don't reflect enough on, on what they, what they went through dealing with us and the, <laughs> the, the incredible impact that they had on our lives. So I, I would love to, I would love to see her again and tell her this. <laughs> well, shout out to Mrs. Travis. <laughs> yeah, she's, <laughs> She is a pretty badass woman, if I may say. <laughs> well, on that note, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and for spending some time to talk about your perspective on the financial services industry and, uh, you know, where you kind of see it going and, and how we can make some change. So thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you both for all, all the work that you're putting into this. I think all, all in all together, we'll, we'll get, we'll get there. We'll move, we'll move bridges. <laughs> That's right. We're ready. I'm very excited. <laughs> thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is a little louder now by the bridge initiative. Thanks to everyone for this great conversation. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring great women from financial services, talking about a variety of topics. If you'd like to catch up on what we've been doing, if you have any questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, you can visit fi360bridge.com to check out previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts. Email us at bridge at fi360.com and connect with us on Twitter at fi360bridge. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. We want you all to get a little louder now.